Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You know, there's a funny thing where people say to me, oh, you're you're a quant. You're not creative. You know, other people are creative, but people like you, you just like numbers. And it's like, well, no, because the numbers just answer the question. But your creativity comes up with the question, right? You have to sit there and look at markets and look at things happening and say, I feel there's a thing that's happening here. I wonder if there's an advantage. But all of the money comes from... Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast. This is episode 253. I'm Tessa, co-host of Chat with Traders. You just heard a little snippet of our guest today, who I will introduce shortly. I hope everyone's doing well, staying healthy, or at least trying to stay healthy. And it's amazing that we're already in February. If you're a new listener, welcome to Chat with Traders. And for all of you who've been longtime listeners, we appreciate you so much. We have listeners from all over the world, and we'd love to hear from you. We literally want to hear your voices. Simply hop on the chatwithtraders.com website and click on the Speak to Chat with Traders in the menu, state your first name, where you're calling from, and answer the question, what keeps you in the game of trading? Keep it short and brief, and if we get enough voices, we may compile it and share it with everyone. Well, I'm excited about today's show. Ian speaks with another very special guest of ours. His name is Patrick Boyle. Patrick is a finance professor, author, quant hedge fund manager, and a connoisseur of financial history. As a young investor in utility stocks, Patrick's hunger to learn and apply the lessons of financial history helped him to maintain composure during the frenzied bubble market in the late 90s. His studiousness and growing aptitude for finding opportunities resulted in him making valuable connections with mentors and business partners. His desire to understand history by analyzing data led to building quantitative trading models, and eventually he launched a quant hedge fund called Palomar Capital. Guys and gals, this episode is jam-packed with so much rich information, wisdom, humor. Patrick is a natural and engaging storyteller, and he makes finance that much more fun. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the great honor of presenting Mr. Patrick Boyle. Well, Patrick, uh, welcome to Chat with Traders. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be on. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so a little bit about your background. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, I was born in the United States, but grew up in Ireland. Both of my parents were Irish. And so, um, you know, I went to school in Ireland. I guess we moved there when I was about four years old and I stayed there through university and then uh, then came to the United States to work afterwards. So. Oh, great. What, what did you uh, major in in university? I studied business uh, for my undergrad, and then later I went back and studied finance uh, as a master's degree. So 
Um, it, it's kind of interesting because initially I didn't really know very much about markets. And so, um, you know, when I started working in the world of finance, I, I kind of knew more the kinds of stuff you learn in in a business degree than than a finance degree. So I kind of knew all of this sort of accounting type stuff, but nothing about kind of how markets work or, you know, stocks and bonds or why people buy them or anything like that. So. Mm. So was it your experience in the university that helped uh, trigger your interest in um, in the stock market or commodities market or whatever, or was it friends or family? Um, it, well, it, it was possibly, I, I guess my dad, when, when I was a teenager, I've sort of worked summer jobs since I was uh, 14, which was when I was allowed to work. And so I worked uh, for one summer and earned, uh, you know, kind of saved all my money at the end of the summer at the age of 14. And my dad then encouraged me to invest it in the in the stock market. So I bought a stock. And, um, you know, at the time I was terrified, you know, that I would lose all of my hard, hard earned uh, money. And, um, you know, basically kind of summer by summer I would work and, and uh, you know, my dad would encourage me to invest uh, some of the money. But in truth, like I really just sort of listened to what, uh, you know, like I picked these, uh, you know, I think the first stock I bought was, I forget even, it was some sort of utility company that was, you know, some special, uh, you know, tax treatment to utilities at the time. I don't, I, I don't even remember the reasoning at all, because I was 14 years old, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of got, uh, you know, it sort of interested me. But, um, you know, e even at that point, I kind of I, I worried quite a lot about it because I felt I worked very hard mm. to save money. You know, these kind of minimum wage jobs you get as a <laughs> teenager and the last thing, you know, you see the the stock fall a couple of percent and you're like, well, that's hours of work gone down the drain. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. So you started off as a like a buy and hold investor in the was that the early 90s? Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, re really just kind of, uh, you know, essentially it depended on how much I would earn over a summer, but I would buy kind of one or two stocks uh, with my 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 savings. And, you know, back then commissions were very high. So you really did just buy and hold. And, and in truth, I kind of, you know, overall, I still even, even though I'm a reasonably fast paced trader, I kind of still recommend to most people that that buy and hold probably works for them you know it's sort of uh you know you you get exposure to uh to to business to owning a business and the the sort of returns that come from that mm -hmm. and over this time period uh, you got started when you're a teenager what sort of things did you kind of look at when picking a stock or did you just pick a stock because your maybe your parents recommended it, or you. It, it was very much like my my dad, and my dad was a doctor, so my dad I think had a broker, and he would go in and, you know, have these long discussions with his broker, and then it was you know I, I my it was really very directed by my dad, like he'd it's one of those things where he'd sort of give me a choice, but it was you know it, it was pretty much um you know i think the idea was just to sort of diversify and to buy kind of safe companies and that kind of thing but i can't really 
you know, be a total lie to claim that there was any real wisdom that occurred at that point. It was very much, I think, my dad just sort of wanted to encourage me to save rather than to spend my money. And um, and my dad had invested for years and, uh, you know, it, it just sort of seemed like a reasonable thing to do. So in truth, it was probably, uh, you know, the overall goal was probably just diversification. To, you know, there were no, I, I don't really believe, there would have been mutual funds, but I, I had single stocks at the time and there were no index funds or anything like that at the time, at least not commonly available. And so just sort of every summer I would work and buy sort of a stock or two. And over, by, by the time, I guess I was in my 20s, I had a, a little portfolio and there'd been a bit of a bull market. So it had done reasonably well. Mm-hmm. And how did the advent of the internet and the dot-com boom, uh, you know, come into your investing uh, experience? Well, the dot-com boom kind of had a huge effect on me because I started working in the markets in 1998. So kind of right as things took off. And back then I, I worked in the private wealth management area of, of a bank. And, um, you know, it went from like the stock market being sort of a a, a thing that sort of uh, a, a few people invested in to being, uh, you know, sort of a, a constant discussion, like every time you went out to a party or to a dinner or whatever, people would be talking about stocks. And in particular, they'd be talking about the kind of high flying Internet stocks at the time. And so that was a very is a very interesting point to start in the market where there's sort of a boom and a bust, you know, and it, it's it's interesting because I worked in the long only um, uh, private wealth management area, uh, 98, 99, 2000. And then 2001 kind of right as well, 2000, the market started to fall. And 2001, when people were, uh, you know, starting to really lose faith in markets was when I started working at a hedge fund. And so that was when there were sort of more opportunities to go long and go short and kind of short term trading and all of that sort of thing. Um and so it was it was kind of quite an interesting, I guess, just the timing of all of those moves and everything was quite interesting. I think I even started work around the time of the meltdown of long term capital management, you know, so I sort of turned up at work and like things were as vol. you know, 1998 was actually a hugely volatile year, like, you know, there were kind of daily swings. Well, gosh, there were big, big swings. Um and then 1999, it was like the tech stuff that all just went straight up. And of course, being a young guy and kind of understanding the Internet, like I, I would have kind of had my own computer and been an early adopter of the Internet and kind of, you know, had things like Internet banking and, uh, you know, been on, you know, buying stuff on eBay and things like that. Like I was quite excited by the dot com uh, by the internet on its own and by computers, and then also um, all of these stocks that that uh, sort of seemed, uh, what can I say? It, it, it was a time when older investors were sort of viewed as possibly a bit out of touch. I d- it didn't turn out that they were, but there was a good year and a half there where if you were young and you kind of felt that you knew all of the cool startups and whatever, and you had no uh, no concept of valuation but sort of a knowledge of what was happening like what was cool and what was not uh you you seemed very smart for about 
12 months, you know, and, and then, then people started avoiding. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, uh, uh, did you buy into the idea that this bull market in the dot-com era was different from other bull markets because of this revolutionary technology called the internet was going to usher in a new golden age. And so it would be justified having high expectations of what stocks could do. I kind of did in that it's interesting because I sort of, I remember at the time feeling that it was very reasonable to expect, we'll say 20% returns, right? So I would put, when I would invest, I would put my money in the market and sort of calculate sort of how much money I would have in 10 years time compounding at 20% a year. And, and that, like, it sounds idiotic today, but back then, it's sort of like, that's sort of all of the friends I had and everything thought like that. Now, I was lucky because I worked in the business and I worked with sort of smarter, older people who had seen things a little bit more. So they would kind of give more sensible advice. I think I got more excited by the idea of it, but because I, I already had kind of a diversified portfolio of stocks and I was really at that point, I was investing sort of new earnings and kind of dividends that would accumulate would get reinvested. But I was lucky not to really get too caught up in, in the real nonsense, largely because I had sort of smart people around me who would sort of say, you know, let, let's let's watch and see how this works out. But I was kind of a believer. Um, it's a funny thing because in the last few years, you know, like young people, sort of the same people as me, but, uh, you know, today have been quite caught up in a lot of the crypto stuff and things like that. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for that way of thinking, because that's how I thought at that age as well. But the the thing I would say was that it was very obvious as a young person with a computer back then that the world was changing. There was a way that, that I could do stuff, like I could buy stuff on the internet, I could email my CV when I was applying for jobs, all these kinds of things existed that people my parents' age didn't understand, but they were definitely better ways of doing things. And so the business case behind the internet, you know, the idea that things like almost the knowing what wouldn't work was useful because it was at the time I remember there were a number of IPOs for like yellow pages and things like that. And I remember as a, you know, sort of 20, 22 year old kind of looking at this and thinking like, who on earth is going to use a phone book? You know, like it's sort of, a, it, it arrives at your home and you recycle it, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. but you know, those things were going public. And I kind of wonder if the, the management of those companies knew <laughs> that, that it was on the way out. Well, I think if they had known, they probably would have, found a way of banging it up on the internet. But I think, you know, th it, there were certain things like there were obviously businesses a threat from the internet. And I think that part of the equation was correct. But the other side of the coin, where you looked around and you saw all of these kind of hot new startups and you'd read in the newspaper that some guy launched a website uh, and a week later was a billionaire. And I think I wasn't, uh, I was too young to be grounded enough to realize that that was nonsense, like that it didn't make sense and that the multiples, you know, back then, um, a lot of those stocks, because they were sort of um, 
so ridiculously expensive. The brokers came up with different ways. Of, you know, they'd say, oh, well, you can't look at the price to earnings ratio because the earnings are negative. Um, but we've come up with the price to clicks ratio, you know, because the amount of people who click on this website means that it's a hot website. And you kind of go, well, uh, yeah, I can see how that's a good way of separating the different websites. But it, it's a bit unnerving that none of them are making money, you know. <laughs> and so... I was kind of intellectually caught up in it, but I was possibly a little bit lucky that I didn't throw too much money at it. Like I was maybe I, I kind of stewed on it long enough to to kind of not make I, I I did buy I did buy one mutual fund at the absolute top, but luckily with not much money. There was one called like the Janus Technology Fund. And I I, I really believe I bought it in like, you know towards the end of December in 1999. And luckily, I think I only put a couple of thousand dollars into it, but I think that was the high tick of that thing. Like it just went straight down. And I remember reading all the news articles about the guy who ran the fund and they kind of go, he's a genius. He And they'd have pictures of him like, climbing down a manhole inspecting the fiber optic cables that were been put under the ground and like he really understands this stuff and you're like well good good he'll he'll know if this is all falling apart and it's like he didn't (laughs) 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 thing wrapped up about a year later well did the overvaluations in any of these dot-com stocks tempt you to sell short i didn't know much about short selling at the top. And then by the time I started kind of really actively trading, I was trading futures and and trading kind of index type futures. So I I kind of and and really what happened actually to move me because because the truth was I was inter- like uh, one of the things that interested me about markets was just companies like I was interested in companies, what they do. Um, you know, what's the difference between a good and a bad company, that sort of thing, like kind of the kind of thing someone interested in fundamentals would be interested in. But I worked in this sort of wealth management area where we were, you know, very much long term investors. And it was also, you know, the people I worked with were all uh, kind of quite a bit older than me. You know, they were in the youngest people like managing money were in their 40s. And I was sort of a rather fresh faced 20 year old with a, a big mop of hair. It's quite quite a different look back then. <laughs> and um you know, of course, they wouldn't put me in front of a customer because I was way too young to be put in front of a customer. But I was young enough to also think that they should put me in front of customers. So I figured that what I needed to do was to have experience, right? Because all of these, the real thing these guys had is they were able to say, well, in the 70s, when this happened, this was a good investment approach. And so that's what we're doing. And I thought, well, how can I understand all of that stuff like how can i understand stock market history and so there were two approaches one was just to read books you know and luckily in the late 90s um you know barnes noble was packed full of investment books like it was half of the half of the bookstore at the time so there were lots of books to read and then i just thought well in order to understand like kind of how the prices move and the the history of like what worked and what didn't and when did it work? Uh, you know, at the time, there was all this data on the Internet. And amusingly, it was easier back then to get stock market data than it is today, because all of those dot com companies just threw a load of data up on the Internet. You know, so you could download all of this stuff for free and and start, uh, you know, kind of screening or uh, analyzing it. And so 
I started um, just downloading data and trying to understand, like, in a rising interest rate environment, how do stocks perform, which stocks perform? In a falling interest rate environment, how do stocks perform and which ones perform? Mm. You know, should you buy higher low PE companies? Should you buy value stocks or growth stocks? And, you know, and when when do these various things work? And so I just started building. I, I had moved to Boston and I didn't really know anyone. I, I had one friend in Boston and a computer in a small apartment. And so I just spent a lot of my spare time it was a way of learning how to use the computer and it just interested me and so i would just analyze all of the data but i was looking for long-term long-only investment strategies like something that would say to me you know in this economic environment you can buy this type of stock and hold it indefinitely and you should outperform and the funny thing was that i i found things that were sort of reasonably interesting like that but I kept finding kind of more short-term stuff. And that was entirely unsuited to what I was doing at work. So I was sort of able to look smart in the office because I'd go into the office and sort of discuss the backwardation in the oil contracts. And people kind of go, oh, how do you know about that? Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that it added a lot of value for my employer. But that sort of pulled me towards... The, the trading thing simply because I worked out that even though I wasn't trying to find short-term signals, analyzing data tends to tends to dig out shorter term rather than long-term uh, signals. So that that was kind of what happened with me. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Mm. So it sounds like on your own accord, you had a natural interest in getting into some kind of quantitative trading on your own. Is that is that accurate or were you yeah. introduced to it by someone else? And I, I sort of, I came across like this idea that you could understand history by analyzing data, but I wasn't very good at analyzing data early on. Like I didn't really know enough of the sort of statistical techniques. So I, I built all of these models and tried to understand things. But it was really when I read Vic Niederhofer's book, Education of the Speculator, and I read this book and I was like, oh, this guy, he's got similar ideas to me, but he's way, 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 way better than me. You know, he's way smarter than me. And so I kind of dug through his book. Like to, I still have I have about five copies of that book kicking around the house. But I have my original copy that's all worn out from reading it and rereading it. But that book, and then there were also things like the Jack Schwager Market Wizards books that I read. And, you know, at the time, like I was reading the Jack Schwager book and I didn't really know what futures were, you know, so I had to like learn all of that stuff as well, because I, I was used to just single stocks and bonds. And um, basically, 
I kind of worked out that there was a world of people who sort of thought like I did. And then uh, then I met with Vic Niederhofer and he would just critique the the sort of analysis I did. Like I would do these these awful studies and send them to him and he'd kind of go like, you know, you're you're going in an interesting direction, but you you don't understand how to differentiate sort of, um, you know, uh, randomness from a real market effect. And so he would email back and forth with me and sort of tell me what I was doing wrong. Uh, and I slowly got better. And so it was, I guess, a combination of curiosity. I think also like, a, I think one of the good things about me at that point in time was I was quite aware that I knew nothing. And, and, and I think that that's a good way to be. There's a lot of people who know nothing and they think they know everything. While I very much real, like it was, it was the realization that I knew nothing that made me try and learn this stuff. And then as I learned stuff, you know, you'd find these little things and you'd be like, gosh, you know, I found something really interesting and other people don't seem to know this. And that, of course, just encouraged further research. But my, my research, to be honest, was was not that good. You know, there were things I, I got interested in, like um, uh, closed end mutual funds. You know, when I worked out that they traded, some of them traded at discounts and some at premiums. Mm -hmm. I then wanted to see, well, what happens if you buy all the ones that are trading at a discount or what what happens if you buy those and sell the other one short? And of course, I wasn't even able to trade this, but I just wanted to to know what happens. And basically, yeah, I just, uh, you know, kind of just uh, possibly out, out of not knowing very many people and having a computer, I, I kept myself busy learning, uh, learning all of this stuff for a few years. So. Oh, wow. And so what did you find with that uh, uh, closed end mutual fund uh, strategy of buying the discounted ones and shorting the uh, ones with premium? You know, it was an all right trade that earned very little money. And actually, that was one of the real benefits of meeting Vic Niederhofer, because he would point out to me, he'd say to me, Patrick, you keep finding a bunch of things that work as long as you don't include transaction costs in them. You know? mm. And the minute you throw transaction costs in, you, you know, the, these things are all money losers. Like you said, you know, you're thinking mm. in the right direction, but you've got to find fatter profits that compensate you for risk and that compensate you and that will overcome the cost of trading, you know? So, um, so things like that, and then just actual, uh, you know, statistical methods uh, that, that Victor would like, uh, you know, he'd recommend all of these books to me and I would get the books and I'd dig through them and I'd say, well, what, what does this mean? How should I use this? And he was very generous because Victor was, uh, you know, he was kind of quite a serious guy and he would answer my emails, you know, and that was uh, that was kind of quite exciting and and it was really good for me. Wow. I understand. Uh, did you later uh, go on to work with uh, Victor? Yeah, about about a year after reading his book, uh, Victor, uh, you know, I was working at Bank of America at the time, and I just bought a, bought my first apartment. And Victor sent me an email and said, do you want to come out to Connecticut and work here? And I kind of almost didn't, I, I wasn't entirely sure if he was serious or, or uh, you know, kind of teasing me. And I said I would. And I think I drove out to meet with him. He made me a job offer. And and I, I moved, you know, two weeks later, you know, I gave two weeks notice to Bank of America. 
rented out my apartment and moved to Connecticut uh, because like I couldn't believe my luck. Like, uh, you know, a year ago, I had read his book. It was, in my opinion, the be- to this day, I think it's one of the best books on sort of the, what can I say, like how a trader thinks. And um and and to to kind of you know a year later be sitting in that office it just it seemed amazing to this day it seems amazing to me like it really was uh, quite a stroke of luck you know wow uh was he a catalyst for you to start your own uh quant hedge fund um i don't really know i actually i i loved working for victor and i i actually loved working you know i liked uh i i don't know that i'm like necessarily the world's most entrepreneurial person i i enjoyed working basically everywhere i worked i i had this great luck that i met a ton of really smart people like just um at, at almost every firm i've worked at i've really enjoyed it but what happened the real reason i i launched palomar was just it was when was it it was in 2011 basically the credit crunch had ended and there was kind of a, a, a i guess just to cut back a little bit i would say that i spent many years as a trader and i was never because once you take this sort of statistical approach you're always trying to separate um randomness from reality you know so just because you've had a good run doesn't mean you're good at what you're doing right you could be lucky flipping coins or whatever it might be and so i spent many years kind of agonizing over you know just because i've made a profit doesn't mean that what i'm doing is any good it could just be lucky or i could be making money but i'm exposed to a risk that i don't understand you know i had kind of um you know as a big fan of the Lowenstein book um, about long-term capital management, you know, and there's there's a huge warning in there to any trader that basically says, you know, don't uh, don't start thinking you're too smart, you know, like because just because something's worked for a few years and it's kind of new, it doesn't actually mean that it's a good idea. And so, some of the, the the tests I had run, you know, you would find these trading strategies that would win like 90% of the time. And, and you'd be like, well, that's amazing. But as you as you run it on more and more data, you see that it does win 90% of the time, but that 10%, it will lose you way more than it made you when, when you were right. Mm-hmm. And so any good trade that you have, you're always wondering, you know, is the is the sort of Damocles above my head? You know, like, am I, uh, you know, am I right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I always had and kind of still have a certain amount of doubt about like when things go well i never get overly excited and um it was really that the credit crunch had had ended and during the credit crunch i had seen a lot of very smart people really fall on their faces like good people who had been good traders for a long time and when the market collapsed the way it did collapse uh, you know, they're, they're, they they had, you know, a, a year that had lost more money than they had made in the prior decade. Kind of thing. There are mm-hmm. a lot of people like that. Mm-hmm. And I had managed to kind of grind out a, a, a sort of a reasonably low volatility, decent return during that period. And then what had happened was just, uh, you know, I'd worked uh, at, at a couple of banks in London where, um, you know, the, 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 there were prop desks where it was basically an internal hedge fund within these banks. And they would pay you as if it was a hedge fund. And it was great. And you, you'd get to use all the infrastructure of the bank. And it, it was a wonderful job. 
But because of the credit crunch, the banks had basically all become semi-nationalized. They're under government control in one way or another. And they were told they had to de-risk. And none of the bank, even though it's kind of, it entertains me because the real losses in the credit crunch came from basically the traditional business of banks, which is lending people money to buy houses. But anyhow, they decided they had to de-risk and there, there was no bank CEO that was going to sort of be hauled in front of uh, Congress to explain why uh, a bunch of uh, fast-paced traders in, in a quiet room in, in London had blown a load of money. And mm. so the banks were really losing the will to hire people like me. Um, a lot of the big hedge funds, um, they were kind of doing okay, but there, there were, it, it seemed to me that there was a real risk. Like I'd seen a few people who had, you know, done all right, but they'd kind of hopped around a few jobs and I didn't want to do that. And I kind of thought, well, if I launch a fund and I, even if I just have five customers, that's like five jobs, it's diversification, right? And if one of them uh, you know, doesn't like what I'm doing. Well, the other four might stick around. And so uh, really kind of the the reason I, I started a business was just that it seemed like the only way to keep doing what I was doing at that point. Uh, you know, the, the idea of working at a big firm and not, you know, not having to, to spend your time on many of the other issues, because, you know, running a business is very different to running a trading strategy. And um, and that is the downside of running. Well, at least if you really love trading, the downside of running a business is that you suddenly find yourself involved in all sorts of IT issues and capital raising and marketing and, you know, all of these other things that that weren't necessarily how you wanted to spend your time. Mm hmm. Um if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, uh, what was your biggest loss and how did it all happen? You know, my biggest loss was a bit of an interesting one. Or like, it, I, I don't know if it was biggest percentage wise, but but uh, the the worst day of trading I ever had was the day of Jerome Curviel's, uh, You know, when, when the rogue trader. It, it was actually around this time in two thousand and. Seven. It was kind of right before the credit crunch. It was the markets were closed because it was Martin Luther King Day. And at Sokjen, they discovered that a rogue trader had, I think, bought like 30 yards of Eurostoxx futures. And they decided to bang that all out on a day when the US markets were closed. And so it was expected to be like I, I worked in London at the time. And on those days when the U.S. market is closed, you know, the European markets are open and nothing much happens in them. It's a bit of a sleepy day. So I turned up in the office kind of in, in jeans, you know, which was not my not not the usual thing. But I was basically kind of, you know, high fiving uh, the boss and then heading out again kind of thing. And the market was collapsing, you know, and, and I had a lot of signals that said to me that the market should go up. And so I, I took a decent sized position. And the market just would collapse, stabilize, collapse, stabilize, collapse, you know. Mm. And eventually the, the S&Ps seemed to calm down. And that was when I realized they were limit down. And <laughs> that's, why, that's why it stopped falling. Um, it was the first limit down day I had seen in markets. And um, it, it was sort of an interesting thing because that was a brutal day, like where, um, you know, I, I just couldn't have been more wrong. 
and uh, you know was trying to get out and and trying to cut size but no matter how much you cut size the fact that the market was like it, it was crashing um there's all you can do is look less awful you you know if you came into this long yeah you know it, it's just sort of risk management and trying to get out but fortunately there was um when I had about flattened out with just a brutal loss, like just a, I felt humiliated, I, you know, I stand there in a pair of jeans with the worst losing day I'd ever had, you know, explaining that to, to senior management. And the market started rallying like hell because Bernanke had, you know, it, it had been so awful that they did that emergency rate cut. So the market started taking off and my signal said, you've got to get long. And I thought, good Lord, am I going to do this again? You know, like, because there's sort of a point at which you you think like, I need to just go home and go to bed. Like, I need to stop with this. Mm-hmm. And so anyhow, I, I managed to steal myself and buy into the rally. It also like PL, amusingly, the PL didn't get struck on my loss because the market was closed. You know, it kind of it got averaged over two days. And I managed to make enough money on on the bounce back that in truth, like if you look at my PL uh, as calculated by the systems, it looks like an all right day. That that is a day that that uh, you know I I will remember as as the worst day I've seen in markets. But it it turned out to be kind of a good thing for me because that was right before the credit crunch, and we had been in an awfully low vol market. You know the S and P's used to back then, like I mean they'd have a daily range of four points, and fortunately that that big volatility explosion, uh, you know led me to to adjusting size adjusting risk management like because my 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 systematic approach to trading is quite dynamic and pulls in what's happened recently and so when the whole credit crunch kind of kicked off i was sort of i felt very lucky to have sort of been uh, almost immunized from the the fear of the volatility because of that that brutal day that had happened maybe you know a month or so before the 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 real horrors of uh, of the credit crunch <laughs> appeared how has your experience with the limitations of quant trading varied over the years the limitations well you know the the interesting thing you know i i guess everything you do limits you in one way or another and it, it's even it's a funny thing because as a quant trader, as I said to you earlier, I kind of always loved the story of the market, and I still love the story of the market, and I love reading all of the news that I don't then trade on because that's not what I do. And so in certain ways, you're kind of limited by that. But one of the thing that I really enjoy about quant trading is is the fast-paced nature of it. Now, the fast-paced nature equally means that you kind of grind out a whole bunch of small profits that hopefully turn into a large profit over time. But you, you never have like a heroic story of like sort of buying a stock at 10x or whatever, you know, because you're just in and out constantly. Um, one of the things that I like about it, and one of the, the the fact that you trade a lot means that you really examine yourself, like you really examine your own decision-making ability. And I, I think that that's actually the thing that has kept me really interested in markets, because in a funny way, you would say, like, after, I don't know, 20, 25 years in this business, like, aren't you sick of it? And and there's a good argument that there's many things you would get sick of. 
But the thing that's most interesting about it to me is just that you you examine yourself. You know how often you're right and wrong and you have a good gauge for it and you know how bad it is when you're wrong and things like that. And so it, it almost has a, you know, a, a therapeutic like uh, effect to it where it forces you to to study your mistakes and to really to, to kind of have a pretty accurate gauge as to how good and bad you are and when you've been lucky and when you've been smart and things like that. And, and I, I, I do like that. And I guess so the limitations, I, I often feel that, you know, that there's a type of person who is a long term uh, sort of single stock type trader. And, and I'm often jealous of them because they get to feel really smart because they bought like whatever the hot stock of right now is when it was way, way lower and they're, they're, they're a smart guy and everyone knows they're a smart guy. While I unfortunately know how much of an idiot I am because I have repeated mistakes to deal with. Uh, you mentioned in an interview a few years ago that 90% of your time is spent on research. Is this because the effectiveness of previous strategies you employed decline over time, uh, forcing you to have to constantly come up with new strategies? Yeah, I mean, I, th that also is like whether people recognize it or not, that is just the way that markets work. You know, like you can't uh, you can't come up with a good idea at the age of 20 and expect to, to sort of feed off of it every day for the rest of your life. And, and I think that's almost one thing I try to push to people is, you know, because because often people sort of they uh, will say if they decide that, you know, something that would be useful to them. And they sort of want to say to you, well, Patrick, tell tell me the thing that I need to know in order to make a lot of money in markets. The problem is that anything I told someone today would likely be wrong in a year or two years time because it changes. And it, it, it is required. This was one of the great lessons from working with Vic Niederhofer because he had this idea and he actually took it from, do I have the book here? I used to have it around here. I had this book. Uh, by a guy named Bacon uh, called, um, oh, it's something, something turf betting. I forget what it's called. It's it's a gambling book, though. And Victor encouraged me to read all of these gambling books because the, the gamblers actually know that they are exposed to chance, to, to fortune, to good and bad luck and to good and bad decision making. And um, the, the nature of markets, you know, Bacon points out in the book that we'll say if someone worked out that the that the biggest horse always won the race or something like that. So all you had to do as a, as, as a turf better would be to turn up at the race, bet on the biggest horse and it would win. Well, what of course happens is that over time people work that out and it, it, it almost doesn't matter what the signal is, but people work out the signal that, that, um, uh, that shows the likelihood of winning and people start to bet on it. And the more people that bet on it, the odds change. And so even though you might be right about picking which horse wins, the problem is that you'll, because the odds have changed, your wins will be smaller. And then when you're wrong, your losses will be bigger. And you'll, you'll eventually have turned a winning thing into a losing thing.
Excuse the last interruption here. This is Tessa. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you love the podcast, please give Chat with Traders the best review you can on whatever platform you're listening from. This will help us to keep the episodes coming. Also, if you haven't subscribed to our email list, please hop on to chatwithtraders.com and click on subscribe so we can keep you posted of information that may be of importance. Thank you. Now back to the chat with our guests. And markets are exactly the same as that in that any big idea, anything that works today will be discovered. It has to be discovered. And, and you know, that pace might change a little bit over time, but it, it, it throughout history, this has to be the way it works. And that once your trade becomes well known and once anyone can do it, it can't work anymore. And so you have to always find new things. And so there really is no sort of secret sauce or secret idea that the real secret is just to keep grinding away to keep working and really that's even why you know there's a funny thing where people say to me oh you're you're a quant you're not creative you know other people are creative but people like you you just like numbers and it's like well no because the numbers just answer the question you know but your creativity comes up with the question, right? You have to think through, you have to sit there and look at markets and look at things happening and say, I feel there's a thing that's happening here. I wonder if there's an advantage. And then because you're you're capable with, with uh, you know, coding or numbers or whatever, you're able to test it. But all of the money comes from creativity. It comes with coming up with good ideas or even coming up with smart ways of testing an idea that other people maybe can't come up with. Mm -hmm. So do you find that um, your, is it easier or more difficult um, now to have your, your trade ideas last a certain period of time um, now versus before? So in the past, uh, you know, computers were, you know, more expensive. uh, There was less competition. And now there's, Computers are much more powerful, easier to research, trade ideas, and what have you. But you have a lot more competition. Um, is it better or worse today? And I, how I think long? It's, it's harder in a funny way because I've got experience. I've sort of made lots of mistakes. So I maybe I think I'm quicker at knowing what's a good, like what's worth pursuing and what's not worth pursuing. Like that was the problem when I was young was that I didn't know when I was wasting my time and when I wasn't. Um, now I maybe, you know, because I've tested a lot of things, I maybe have a bit of an instinct. Like a, a funny thing is years ago, like in, in my first few years of trading and analyzing, I would find like what looked like the world's greatest trade. Like you'd be like, I found the holy grail. You know, I remember once finding some amazing trade with like the best statistics you've ever seen. And I brought it to Victor. This would have been like a month or two into my job. And I brought it off to him and said, this is an amazing trading strategy. And he said, yeah, it's too good to be true. Check your code. There's an error in there. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, it kind of outraged. I was like, it's not, there's not an error in my code. Like, why doesn't he believe I've got this great idea? And I went away and dug through it. And sure enough, there was a mistake where I was using the, the you know, I'd swapped my variable. So I was predicting the, the past with the present, which isn't very useful. but. You know, he had at that point 40 years of trading experience and he just knew that there was no opportunity that good. Like if it looks too good to be true, there, there's a problem. And sure enough, there was. And so there is a benefit to experience. It is harder. Like there's a ton, a ton of smart people and also even trading costs have come down and things like that, because even 
one of the early advantages was just that if you're trading at a fund or at a bank or somewhere big, because you trade a lot, you get uh, cheaper, cheaper trading costs and so on. You know, I think that's maybe become a little bit more widespread. You know, you can still, as an institutional trader, you still get better, better costs than other people. But, you know, there, there is more competition. But there's also, in a funny way, there's also just there's more people making mistakes as well out there, you know, because there's always there's lots of really smart people doing really smart things in the market. And then you have a bunch of people who kind of don't know very much and have way too much confidence in the markets. And so there's maybe a mix, but I, I, in truth, I've always like my whole career, I've always thought that I'll turn up one day and find that it all no longer works because that's that kind of is the expectation, you know, that that eventually it'll all be washed out and you'll just be, you know, looking at entropy. But, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, the 2010 flash crash um, has been blamed by some traders on machine trading. Uh, how did this event happen? And has the lesson been incorporated into most models today, making such an event unlikely to occur again? Um. It's a bit of an interesting thing because because I I feel that overall like the way they blame the the flash crash I I think that they don't truly know what caused the flash crash the flash crash was a mad sort of a thing that happened that lasted a couple of hours and they sort of blamed a guy trading out of his his bedroom in London um, for a sort of spoofing which I don't really believe because I. I had when was that? I was 2010 and I, I had probably been trading for like nine years, like fast paced trading at that point. I, I had seen people spoofing in markets for the, that entire period. Like I remember I used to see these massive trades come into the book in the Bund only to disappear as the market got close to them and so on. It was very obvious to me, uh, you know, for a very long time. And I think anyone who was a reasonably active trader saw spoofing and knew it was spoofing in the markets. I think there were a few things that that caused the flash crash. There was this idea th- that uh, that it was caused by one guy or by a group of traders who were sort of manipulating or bullying the market around. I would argue that a big part of what happened was that market making had become much more algorithmic at that point in time. And what if you're a fast-paced trader? Actually, a good example would be even during the market would move very rapidly, and you get a fill, and you you then exit that trade, and only you know we'll say like a, an an hour or so later, you'd get a call from your broker that would say we we've undone that trade. That was an erroneous trade, right? So anyone intelligent at that point knew, like we'd just been through a period of great volatility and we had seen people's trades just being unpicked because they were considered unfair for a variety of reasons so any quant trader at that point knew that once the market moved a certain amount there's a very good chance that any buys or sells that you put in the winning trades will be unpicked because they're deemed to have occurred in an unreasonable market so what do you do you shut off your your system is set up that once the market has moved more than a certain amount you just stop trading you know you back out and you come back when uh you know the 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 rule makers have decided which trades are fair and which are not and so i think the real a big part of the flash crash 
was simply that a lot of automated market makers and a lot of uh, you know fast-paced traders like me just backed right out of the market when that started happening. Because you know if you bought at the low on the day of the flash crash, you could have made a fortune, right? You could have been in and out and made a fortune. But there's a really good chance that they would say, well, your buy is invalid and now you're short the market and it's gone up another percent. And it's like, I'm not playing that game. And and no one sensible wanted to do that. And so the, I, I think the real reason that liquidity just disappeared was that people had learned that lesson. And, and you know, but but always whenever there are these big events in markets. It's very easy for people to come in and say, this happened because of this. But but we don't really know. Like we can say that, you know, that there's probably like 10 different things that work together to cause that, that uh, sort of crazy event. Uh, could it happen again? Definitely. Like, I mean, a- anything that has happened can happen again. And many things that haven't happened will happen. You know? <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah, actually, that I, I studied at, at, El- at uh, London Business School with a guy called Elroy Dimson. And his great line on risk is that uh, his definition of risk is that more things can happen than will happen. You know, like essentially <laughs> that there's just more out there than you realize. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to the SIGTECH hedge fund report, only about 22% of hedge funds use a purely quantitative strategy. Um, Why do you think that uh, there aren't a lot more that are using a quantitative approach if if the quantitative approach can show uh, that it has a positive alpha? For one thing, just different people are good at different things. Like quant trading appealed to me because I didn't like just buying something because I felt good about it. I wanted to to have a good reason for doing it. And that, that just sort of appealed to my way of thinking, doesn't appeal to other people's. But also kind of back to that idea of ever-changing cycles, whenever something works well, it draws people in. And then there's sort of too much money chasing too few trades. And so it disappears a great example of that would be convertible bonds, right? Because back um, when I started working for Victor, um, the all of the hedge fund launches in the early 2000s were convertible bond arbitrage. And this was because Ken Griffin had made a fortune in convertible bond arbitrage. And everyone decided this was, you know, the, it was an easy way to raise capital if you launched the converts hedge fund. And so all of the capital came in. And the, the whole reason convertible bond arbitrage worked was people were mispricing convertible bonds and there weren't enough people who knew that. So they'd buy the cheap bonds, hedge it all out and make money. Once once you can raise tens of billions, there aren't enough convertible bonds to do that with. And so the nature of markets, it requires that people be doing different things. Like if everyone is doing the same thing, that thing can't work. And mm-hmm. you you can almost look around like even, um, you know, recently, all of that sort of growth stuff worked basically from, I don't know, 2009 till 2021, growth, growth, growth. The FANG stocks were what people had to own. It It, it couldn't keep going like this. This small basket of American technology stocks can't lift the entire market forever. And so once once everyone is doing that, something else, ha- that has to end and something else has to start. So a market would never work if there weren't a bunch of people doing a bunch of different things. And, and even just that idea of efficient markets hypothesis, the, the market can only 
approach efficiency if the, if if enough analysis in uh, and different types of analysis are being done. And so you actually do often see that where you know whenever in fact it's a terrible thing almost whenever quant does awfully well a ton of money comes in but it doesn't just come to me it comes to every quant fund mm-hmm. and and then they they pile it into the exact same strategies we'll say last year they made a billion dollars in a strategy well now they're throwing three at it as are all of their competitors the, the trade isn't big enough for that and so then you see two years of sort of sideways or losing trades and everyone loses interest and they move on to, you know, whatever the hot new trade is. They they pile into Kathy Wood's arc or whatever, and, and that blows up on them. And so, you know, you, you can't chase last year's or last decade's winning strategy and expect, uh, you know, this year to be a photocopy of last year. Mm. So how has... 2022 been for you uh have you had to switch strategies and do you still dislike shorting um 20 uh, well uh, last year was was actually a very good year for me it's one of my better years it interestingly i do specifically dislike shorting like i uh, you know actually almost every trader i know there's very few people there's some people who are really good at shorting and almost everyone else there's so many people i've met and they kind of go i wish i had never heard of that approach you know <laughs> because you know shorting is always swimming against the tide you know if you look at it 8 out of 10 years are up years in the market 8 out of 10 days are up days in the market like the market tends to grind up. Like I, I say that, like if you can look at a hundred years of data or whatever it might be, you know, you can swim with the the the, you know, you can swim up or down the river. It might be easier to swim down the river. So you you always require, in my opinion, um, you need to qualify your trade better. Your analysis needs to be better to be good at shorting, because if most of the time the market goes up. You can be long stocks and wrong about your idea and possibly still make money, while when you're short, you have to be really right. You have to catch it. Um, many years ago, I did a lot of analysis. Like I, I moved towards certain ideas that are a bit longer term in nature, and one of them is just that if you look at the returns of markets, during different uh, Fed cycles, most of the returns in markets occur during periods of falling interest rates. In fact, if you look at things like the FTSE, if you if you move away from American stocks and look internationally, you'll find that almost all of the return in the stock market occurs during periods of falling interest rates. So during periods of falling interest rates, I have short trades. Uh, really, really reduced to a very low level. I'm more confident shorting during a period of hiking interest rates because there's just more of a chance. It's not even that that I believe that markets will fall in that period, but there's less of a chance that they will ramp in your face. You know that you'll you'll get brutalized by them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've even found during periods like when I look at my returns during the the worst days of the credit crunch and things like that. Surprisingly, I often find that most of my profits in a down market occur on the long side. Because of course, if you're trading long and short, 
you know, you shouldn't have a beta to the market anyhow. And I found during the credit crunch, like often I did quite well catching the bounce after the fall, much more than I, I did catching the fall. Um, so last year was quite a good year. It was sort of interesting because there was a lot of irrationality le- leading into last year. And there, there's a bunch of things you can look at. But but there were a lot of bubble stocks and sort of having been through the dot-com bubble, um, you know, when you saw like, uh, I, I forget, like did Tesla go up like 70% when it was announced that Hertz had bought a couple of cars from them? Like, the, the, you know, a, a, a company that was almost bankrupt was going to buy some of their cars. They were already sold out and somehow that like added, you know, half a trillion dollars of value <laughs> to the company. And you had all the AMC and the GameStop stuff. You had all of the, you know, and, and many other meme stocks. And it felt very like the dot-com bubble. I think the big thing that made it feel to to sort of traditional investors, it, it felt less like the dot-com bubble because of crypto. And because in, in the 1990s, all of the money went into publicly traded stocks. So everyone like saw the NASDAQ, a thing that they could own going up, while now people were kind of reading on the internet that there was some coin with a picture of Elon Musk's dog on it that had uh, you know gone up 10,000% in a day. And they thought, well, I'm not getting involved in that. So I think a lot of regular people almost didn't see what was happening, but the real fraud was in stuff that most people couldn't or didn't want to get involved in. And so in a way, this recent bubble, many regular people were kind of saved from it. They kind of got to watch from the sidelines and have a bit of a laugh. Mm -hmm. But um Last year was a rationalization. And, and there's still many of these things that are trading at prices that make absolutely no sense. Um, and, you know, and the bubble boys are still big believers in it. But um, I felt I felt last year was sort of a, a, a good year for anyone who took a long view of markets. And by that, I just mean who had been around for a while and didn't didn't trade with sort of FOMO as their main uh, main trading signal. And, also, you know, there were even things like, you know, uh, like you come into last year, there was all this stuff about, you know, how no one was going to buy oil anymore. You know, no one's cars were going to be, you know, we were all going to be driving EVs in a year and there'd be no oil. And you look around, you're like, well, there sure seem to be a lot of uses for this oil that everyone says that no one wants. And no one's allowed to drill any new holes in the ground, you know. So so it, it it's not really that surprising, we'll say. Like, you could have invested in the oil industry very cheaply during the, the lows of COVID. And just a, a simply, like, this is a totally non-quantitative thing, but just a simple look at it, like, where you could kind of say, well, like, is this an industry that will be shut down or will it will it trickle along for another 10 years? If it's going to still be around in 10 years, you can sure get on board cheaply. Now, equally, you know, you saw things um, like in uh, in January, I feel, of last year, there was, you know, China fired that, uh, you know, they were testing these hypersonic weapons, you know. And everyone was saying, well, what are these things? They're, they're, they're better than what America has. And it ever so slightly seems like a no-brainer to look at defense stocks and kind of say, like, so is the United States going to watch 
China test fire weapons that they don't have, or are they going to start developing those weapons? And if they're going to develop them, is Lockheed Martin a goodbye, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and and then even you look at things like the, you know, value versus growth and things like that, like kind of, you know, value which had underperformed, like I said, since what, uh, since, since really, since the credit crunch, right? Like there, there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, people think that we finished a big bull market, but we really didn't. If you look, most stocks never rallied really after the credit crunch. If you look at international stocks, they've been sideways for, you know, 10, 15 years. There was this small handful of tech stocks that achieved massive valuations, um, you know, that they were all just sort of selling advertising on the Internet, right? Like, you know, Facebook, Google, advertising companies, right? How can advertising do that well if the core com- if the people who are buying advertising are not doing well? You know, so mm-hmm. in in a funny way, apart from like quantitative strategies working reasonably well, there was also even just a lot of sort of common sense investors did reasonably well over the last year. So mm-hmm. um, I'd like to transition to uh, managing risk and false expectations. Isn't it common? I mean. Can't we expect as a natural uh, phenomenon that as markets rise sharply, that people buy into this idea? Well, you know, maybe this time it really is different for all these various reasons. And so, you know, the expectations of maybe 10% a year, well, why not 15 or 20%? Because the narrative is so powerful. And so the question is, is that um, how do people get swept up in false expectations? Or is it a lack of historical knowledge? Is it a lack of statistical knowledge? And how do we protect ourselves from false expectations? So I think a big part of it is a lack of historical knowledge. But also the truth is, optimistic people are drawn to markets, you know, like kind of real pessimists would never own a stock, you know, they buy bonds, they're careful, they buy gold, or, you know, do do sort of really safe things. So the most optimistic, the dreamers kind of buy stocks, you know? And so then when, when that goes well, though, though, those are the people who get carried away. And, and I think almost anyone I know who works in markets, I didn't maybe like the sort of perma bears, but most people in markets tend to be, actually, even if you're a big bear, you're still optimistic about your ability to make good decisions or to, to ascertain value. And so I think, People in markets tend to be optimistic if they don't think too much about history and think too much about risk management. They they can believe all sorts of of kind of crazy things, and and I think that's even the that's sort of where a lot of kind of con men and charlatans step in. Like even uh, you know I won't ma- name the fund manager who promised fifty percent returns a year over the next uh, decade there about a year ago and. Uh, she just didn't mention that there might be a minus in front of <laughs> But um, I guess once again, I was very lucky. I mentioned him earlier. I was very lucky to work with, with Elroy Dimson at London Business School. He was my thesis advisor. And he is sort of, I would almost say, like the, the number one market historian, because he's a guy who found, who who put together a collection of uh, stock market data from almost every country in the world since 1900. He has this huge trove of data, and then he does this really interesting analysis on it and sort of tries to pull truths from that data. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that data, there are there are certain truths as to how you can do. And, and even one constraining principle is 
that if you feel that your likely return is significantly higher than anyone has ever achieved in the past, you might be right. You know, if you're Jim Simons, you might be right. But there's if you're some guy at home who's like working nine to five and sort of, uh, you know, reads a few chat rooms and buys stocks, uh, chances are, you know, that, that you, you're not going to outdo every investor in history, you know. And so in a way, um, you know, we're almost able to work out the likely best and worst case scenarios based on how well and how horribly people have done in the past. And so it's worth studying kind of how markets work, like what returns are generated from markets. It's also really worthwhile studying people who've lost fortunes, you know, and how they've lost fortunes, because we can all make those mistakes as well. And maybe, you know, one one of the great things about just reading in general is that you get to uh sort of experience uh experience things that you haven't really experienced you know you 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 get to to sort of see other people's lives and walk in their footsteps and maybe learn things from that um in fact it's sort of one of the things that I, in one of my videos I made a while ago about Sam Bankman-Fried, one of the things that really surprised me was that he was put forth as this awfully smart guy who never read books. Like, and he thought it was an absolute waste of time ever reading anything and sort of said, the most you should read is like a tweet or a blog post. And I thought, gosh, Sam, if you had read a few books, <laughs> you know, this wouldn't have happened to you because this is, this is, uh, you know, what? His, the rise and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried, there's an equivalent of that almost every decade throughout history, you know, like this, it, the one person who shouldn't have been surprised was Sam, you know. But. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then when it comes to scams, uh, you know, tips to help us avoid scams. I mean, you know, some of us are smart enough to understand, well, you know, if they offer you 2% per day uh, in this trading technique, obviously that is unrealistic. But what about the more subtle scams? Like my understanding is that Bernie Madoff had uh, seemingly reasonable and somewhat plausible returns, and yet he was a big scammer. Um, is there a way that investors can protect ourselves from these scammers? Well, that that's a bit of a pet question for me, because it's something that, that kind of fascinates me, because I I teach uh, financial derivatives at, at uh, two universities in London. And uh, when when the Madoff meltdown occurred, I was fascinated by it. And as you say, you know, his his promised return was, I think, 12 percent. The return was 12 percent a year over a very long period with pretty much no volatility. But there were still things I kind of I go through an example with my students to say, what could someone who understands derivatives know? Um that that would highlight that this was a scam. Well, to, to start with, it was at least on a, a sharp ratio uh, basis, like on a risk to return basis, it was very surprising. Like it was a, a, a type of return, the likes of which uh, was very rare. So straight away, if something's very rare, maybe it warrants a little bit more research. Now, uh, the, uh, Bernie Madoff, it would appear over time, over time told investors that he did different things with the money. But at his peak, like when he was at his biggest, I, I believe he was telling people that uh, that he traded a split strike conversion, you know, which is just a fairly simple 
option strategy. He only took money from sort of fund the funds kind of professional investors. And if you were a professional investor, it might. And I think he also told them that he only invested in in big stocks that were in the S and P one hundred. So a simple, if if you were given the job, like rather than sit and talk with him and be charmed with him, you might sit down and just look at the stocks in the S and P one hundred and say, how many of these stocks could you trade? A split strike conversion on, and and actually uh, attain the kind of returns that he got. And th- there's a lot of people who did this analysis. I think, um, gosh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, kind of the famous uh, hedge fund uh, guy slash poker player. What's his name? Um, can't think of his name. But anyhow, he he looked rather quickly at. Uh, I, I think Jim Simons as well looked at Madoff's returns and quickly worked out it was a fraud because. If nothing else, he wasn't doing the thing he said he was doing um, because you you couldn't get that return from that strategy. Because even if you picked every month the 10 best out of the 100 stocks to trade that strategy on, you wouldn't be getting a 12% return per month. So, so it was extremely unlikely. That That's kind of one giveaway. And so as a professional investor, you need to do the work, like you need to build the spreadsheet. You don't just go and talk to a guy and go, wow, Bernie, that's amazing, you know. <laughs> um, but then even there, there's a few other interesting things. I know a few people who met him and they tell me that he was an awfully charming guy. Like they say that, you know, any doubts you had, you sit, sat down with Bernie and, and you would just think, gosh, he's the best guy in the world. And he's honest and decent and so on. Mm-hmm. And um you know, and I, I think that's really how he did trick people. And similarly, I kind of I've studied Charles Ponzi and a lot of other con artists as well. And one of the big t- takeaways from almost all of them is that they're unusually charming people. So you almost don't want to talk to them. You actually want to just look at the numbers, because if you're susceptible to being charmed, these are the guys who will charm you. Um, what else might warn you about them, though? I guess um the, the the real thing that I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but actually, when I was at university, we did a case study that looked at Bernie Madoff. Bef- bef- this was before he blew up. And it was because Bernie Madoff was actually the guy who invented payment for order flow, you know, that, that's been in the news a lot over the last few years. And we did a, a class on ethics where we looked at, we, we had to just look at a case study of Bernie Madoff and whether it's ethical or not to do what it is he's doing to pay for order flow uh, rather than to have the trades executed on exchange. And I think that a lot of the people who invested with Bernie Madoff possibly felt that he was doing something crooked because there was always this question mark overhanging even his market making business. And then that he's running an unusually profitable hedge fund on the side. It's possible that some of the investors thought that Bernie was ripping off his brokerage customers and putting the profits in this uh, this strategy and that that you were sort of in with Bernie, you know, and, and I even think, you know, when you look at Sam Bankman Freed, there were a lot of question marks over this guy, like as to whether what he was doing was right. Was he a crook? And, and I think a lot of things in the crypto space, you know, like no one is ever that surprised when sort of these crypto heroes fall and you learn that they were crooks because everyone kind of goes like, yeah, they sure looked like crooks all along. Um, 
And I, I think that many times, like, you know, those Nigerian scams and they sort of say, like, my father stole all this money and he buried it and I need you to help me get it out of the country. And so they kind of get you to conspire with them and to do a criminal act in order to be profitable. And I wonder if a lot of Madoff investors thought that he was a crook, but he was their crook. And they thought Sam Bankman-Fried was a crook, but he was their crook and so on. Mm-hmm. Um Do older strategies, say first employed decades ago, uh, quant strategies, like say, for example, a simple mean reversion strategy, ever become effective again as other quants give up these older strategies for newer ones? I do study all of my trades that I used to do that I no longer do. Like I, 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 there's a point at which if they're not doing well, they get pulled from the live system, but I still analyze them. And an interesting thing, I, I, you know, there's a few ways of looking at it, but I, I worked out a little bit of an idea back actually during the credit crunch, because what happened in the credit crunch was we had gone from, you know, a very volatile market in the early 2000s to an absolutely dead market for a couple of years. As I said, you know, sort of 4% range in the S&P to suddenly explosive markets. And suddenly a lot of the old strategies that used to work started working again during the credit crunch. And I think that it's just my theory, because I always have like an idea behind why a trade works as well as just the numbers of it working. And I think the real reason that trades work like that, that certain trading strategies work is that they trigger our emotions. You know, there's sort of that Mike Tyson line that uh, that everyone has a plan till they get a punch in the mouth, you know. And in suddenly during the credit crunch, people were delivered punches in the mouth and they woke up. You know, if you were sort of dozing through the day, like eating a sandwich at lunchtime and whatever, and the market's moving four percent, when it's suddenly gapping 10 percent, like you're, you know, white knuckled glued to your keyboard. Right. And you think differently and you behave differently. And when the market frightens you, it really frightens you. And when you're really frightened, you don't do what you plan to do. You do what you feel you have to do to survive. And so suddenly, so people are different in different market periods. And thus, I kind of built a bit of a model with a number of factors, volatility being a big one, certain trades work better in certain market environments simply because people's mentalities change. Because you're always, although you look at it, like from my perspective, I might say, well, I'm always trading the numbers. But what's moving the numbers is how people feel. It's whether they're frightened, whether they're excited, whether they're lazy, whether they're energetic. And this moves the market around. And so if you can find sort of things you can measure in the market, that might describe, uh, you know, how emotional or how calm the market is, those factors might help you find trades that will work in, in, in the current environment. If you can find similar environments and see what worked then, will that work now? Mm-hmm. So in uh, closing, um, what are your biggest struggles in trading that you've been battling recently and how have you how are you overcoming it? I, I think my biggest struggles are sort of the struggles that that I've always had because there, there's kind of a funny thing where I, I don't know maybe other people are different to me but but I almost like quantitative trading because it takes the emotion out of trading like you you don't 
you know, it, it, it it's you're doing the correct thing. You know, you're sort of gambling optimally, uh, like a card counter does or whatever. But there still is always a thing where throughout my career, I found that the best trades are the ones that I least want to do. You know, it's it's when it's when you're buying and, and you think you would be ashamed to tell anyone this. Like you, you kind of think like, I'll put the trade in, the trade's going in. But if I lose money on this, I cannot tell anyone like that I was foolish enough to buy on a day like this or to sell on a day like this. And th- those always seem to be the trades that work. And, and that's even, I think, why quantitative trading appeals to me is because it sort of forces you to to do the things that you don't necessarily want to do. Because I, I think if you always do things to feel comfortable, you're always with the herd and uh, and you can never really stand out. And I I think that that actually even the reason, as I said earlier, the reason that that markets and the trading are interesting is simply that it's a battle of of uh, managing your emotions around uh you know sort of uh sometimes frightening or overly exciting things and then you also always have to tell yourself like when things have gone well you have to tell yourself calm down it's not you know you've had a bit of luck here you know the long term expectation is what it is and if it's gone really well over the last two weeks, you're not a genius. It won't necessarily go well over the next two weeks. And then equally, if it's been horrible, you know, if your system is good, if it's wise, if it's well thought out, if it's well tested and not riddled with flaws, uh, it's reasonable to keep to keep trying it until you can find a reason that there's there's something maybe deeply flawed in what you're doing. So. Well, uh, it's great having you on the show, Patrick. Thanks for coming on Chat with Traders. Thank you. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Yeah. And how can listeners get in touch with you or, uh, you know, to learn more about you? Well, the biggest thing I do is is YouTube. I have a YouTube channel and I put up uh, a video a week and it's often just sort of things I find interesting in markets. Um, that's kind of the biggest thing. I'm also on Twitter. I'm kind of reasonably active on Twitter, mostly just causing trouble, annoying people. Um, <laughs> that's that's kind of the big two places to find me online. Great. Yeah, I've certainly learned a lot from you uh, on your many um, YouTube videos, which are very, very interesting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, fantastic. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.